I want to give Father Gilbaugh uh, plenty of time, so just let me give a brief uh, introduction to what we are doing today, part of the purpose of it. It's not our usual chapel. For those of you who have never been here before or don't know what Montana Bible College is, uh, welcome, um, most warm welcomes. We're so glad that you're here. Um, the reason that I wanted to do this is because I am sometimes terrible at uh, communicating well and communicating in, a, in a, an environment in which there are differing opinions. And uh, what I, I don't know if that's necessarily true for Father Gilba. In fact, I would say it's probably not true, considering that I've had a few very good uh, constructive conversations with him in the past, appreciate his heart, appreciate his uh, demeanor, um, even when disagreeing vehemently with somebody. And so uh, he is a very busy man. He's got a lot of people um, under his ministry. And so he has taken time out of that busyness to come and share with us on a Roman Catholic perspective of the Reformation. So uh, please give him a warm welcome as he comes up and we will begin. Father Eric. I was thinking yesterday when it was snowing, I was thinking, is he actually going to be able to get here uh, with these roads? And so I'm glad, I'm glad that he, uh, he was able to, and everybody else who drove. Mother Gilbert, let me ask you uh, a question, personal one, as you're kind of getting situated. And again, thank you for coming. We so appreciate it. So no, appreciate thank you, Danny. I know you're and I, I've been looking forward to this for uh, ever since you called me up. Uh, Danny and I have some mutual friends, and as he said, we, I always enjoy a good theological conversation, which we've uh, had the pleasure of engaging in a few times, and so I was very um, glad that he invited me. I want you to know that uh, I'm just a parish priest in uh, Belgrade and Three Forks, um, and uh, I will do my best to represent the Catholic position accurately, and also to differentiate when appropriate between my own uh, take on, on an issue and that which uh, the church officially teaches so that you can have that distinction. And also, we should l probably let them know that you, you let me know what you would like um, uh, me to talk about and to answer and address. We only have one hour, so I'll do my best. I, I prepared some notes so that hopefully I'll be able to do that very efficiently because really I would be most interested in not answering Danny's question so much as answering any that, that you might have. Uh, but we'll see what time allows. Great. So let's get started. I, I just wanted, so the students uh, here have somewhat of an idea of who you are. Would you mind just telling us a little bit of your background and how it is that you became a priest in the Roman Catholic Church? Okay, sure. I grew up in Portland, Oregon, into a, um, a Catholic home that was the only form of the faith that I knew. And in high school, I began to um, sense what I thought was probably a call to ministry. And so I chose to go to Carroll College um, and spend that time there discerning what the Lord was calling me to do for my life. So as I joke, it only took, I, I announced a business major, it only took one accounting class uh, to get me to switch to philosophy and theology. <laughs> Uh, which are really my, my true interests anyway. So I double majored there in philosophy and systematic theology. Um, still, by the end of my four years, it was not clear to me whether I should pursue the, uh, the priesthood or, um, or marriage. Long story short, ended up being the priesthood. Um, and um, also, it was during that time that I made a transition from... Uh, I had an extremely enthusiastic um, Christian high school experience, lots of love, lots of affection, great retreats, um, things like that. And then when I went to Carroll, there was a radical shift into, um, I would say, a withdrawal of all of those sort of consoling things. For example, if when you were in high school, you, you, got, you had the gift of that kind of rah, rah, rah um, type of faith. 
then I was being introduced to a lot of uh, skeptical um, approaches to both faith in, in, in study and uh, also philosophy. And I, I took a step back, so to speak, from the presumption that my faith was accurate to attempt to be as objective as one can be um, and investigate, um, you know, if you will, the foundations for what I believed which was a painful and difficult process, but also a very uh, good one, and I don't think an inappropriate one. I think I did it rightly. I never ceased practice of faith or faith in Christ or anything like that, but I wanted to make sure before I went launching off into uh, uh, the Catholic priesthood that I was well-grounded and wouldn't one day go, oh dear, I have led uh, lots and lots of other souls astray. So. Uh, I wouldn't have become a priest if I didn't feel confident in that. That's sort of the story, story of faith, if you will. Three years at the cathedral in Helena before being transferred to the Gallatin Valley in 2008, where I've been ever since. Great. Thank you for that. Father Gil, about 500 years ago, a German Catholic priest who was ordained in the Augustinian order, he uh, extended an invitation to other people within the church to debate contemporary theological issues. That was 500 years ago this year, 1517. He did that by tacking a list of 95 theses that he wished to debate on a church door in Wittenberg in Germany. Um, most of those theses, or about half of them included something to do with indulgences. Uh, from your perspective, as a priest who's spent many years in higher education, when you think now of the Reformation, uh, what are the first three things that come to your mind? Uh, well. And I gave this a little bit of reflection. So since you asked for three things, I would name them as these. First of all, um, I think of the tragedy that the unity of Western Christendom was lost. Secondly, that legitimate reform was not done in a timely manner. And thirdly, that the scandal of reform so long unfulfilled at this period in history provided uh, the fuel for uh, rebellious personalities. So obviously I would consider Luther to be a rebellious personality. The second one there, uh, Father Gilba, that you said that <clears throat> not reformed in a timely fashion, mm -hmm. do you think that the church, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, needed to be reformed? Yes, um, absolutely. I don't think that anybody could study history and, and argue otherwise. Um, at this period in history, there was tremendous laxity in terms of discipline by and large. And you could say, on one hand, moral discipline in general, but also discipline within the church as regards to the clergy, um, the religious, popes, and so forth. So there had been calls repeatedly for reforms, and actually there had been a reform council called, and that was the Council of Florence in the late 1400s. Unfortunately, um, it was one of those situations where the, the documents were promulgated and they, they just were not fulfilled. You know, um, that happens a lot in, uh, when you have bureaucracy. That happens a lot in, in government. And so only a few years before uh, Luther tacked his thesis to the church door, there had been a council saying, we need reform. And bookus, nothing was done about it. And so years passed, frustration built. There was definitely a need for reform, and I just thought I m might mention a few things. There was um, uh, lax discipline. There were arguably wrong priorities within the church being exercised. There were, as I'm sure you know, um, very detrimental political entanglements of church and state. Um, there was in many regards, uh, widespread clerical incompetence. Uh, the seminary system, for example, which we all take for granted, being Catholic or Protestant, the idea that you go to one place and engage in a university-like uh, approach to preparation for ministry, that didn't exist at the time. If, if a person wanted to be a priest, for example, he would, he would train under his local parish priest. And whatever that priest was good at, it was probably passed on. Whatever mistakes he made in the Mass or in whatever his limitations were in theology or scripture, those were probably passed on as well. Um, and so there was also a lot of diversity, so to speak, region 
to region uh, within the church that was illegitimate uh, diversity. And I think that there was just a lot of theological uh, confusion in general. So what do you think the Reformation's theological impact on the Catholic Church was, whether for good or for worse? Okay, well, I think that it was a mixed bag. The worst would be perhaps those things that I alluded to when I think of. Um, unity uh, is good. Uh, division, generally speaking from a Christian perspective, uh, is bad. So there was a lot of division, a lot of violence that would eventually um, even erupt as things became more politicized, people would die. Uh, bad. For, for good though, the, the Reformation forced a crisis from which the Catholic Church could not escape. So if there was need for reform and the Council of Florence and other figures and documents called for it, but it wasn't acted upon, now it had to be acted upon um, in a clear manner. Um, so the status quo of uh, Western Christianity disappeared within one lifetime. And it, the church had to respond, and she did. There was no going back. Now, I want to make the distinction here between, when we talk about reform from a Catholic point of view, the distinction between discipline and doctrine. This is a very important one for us, or if you will, between doing and teaching. From the Catholic point of view, there was no need for reform of the church's teaching in the sense that she taught one thing one day and needed to teach the opposite the next day. There was need for reform in the presentation and formulation of doctrine, and we do believe that doctrine develops properly understood, sort of, if you will, an unpacking of the deposit of faith from Christ and the apostles. Um, but there was mostly need for return for reform in, in discipline and in presentation of church teaching. Okay, so she needed to explain, clarify, and refine her presentation of theology on certain points, especially those then being challenged, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, so, may a Christian believe and hold this or that position on the Eucharist, for example? She needed to answer some of those questions. Um, in terms of discipline, uh, much needed to be reformed. I'll give you some examples of things that um, any Catholic would find scandalous. There were bishops of dioceses at that time who didn't even live in their diocese. So they held the authority of governance, and yet they weren't even present there. Okay? Uh, there was the practice of so-called selling of indulgences, which we'll talk about in a minute. There was immoral behavior among some clergy, most famously amongst uh, the popes of the time, in specifically Pope Alexander, who would immediately precede the Reformation. I, I have to believe that the fact that he had mistresses and illegitimate children uh, was, if you will, the last straw for most reform-minded people. I consider myself to be a reform-minded person. I, I hate corruption. I hate uh, wrong prioritization. I hate bureaucracy for the sake of bureaucracy, those sorts of things. And it's hard enough to sort of cry out for, against those things when you want to emphasize essential truths, let alone when your highest leader is just gravely living an immoral life. Now, after Pope Alexander, there was the hope that uh, by strongly, strongly condemning his behavior, the church would be able to move on and forget, but the memory, uh, the memory was very, very real uh, by the time of 1517. Um, nepotism was a real problem in the, in the church. Uh, religious brothers and sisters uh, in orders like the Franciscans, the Dominicans, the Carmelites, etc., not living, uh, for example, their vows of poverty, but because people over the centuries had donated lots and lots of money to their orders, living uh, at a more comfortable level than, say, your average Western European, things like that. Um, on the positive side, as a result of the Reformation, 
um, new leaders and new approaches emerged from within the Catholic Church uh, that offered vitality to the Church's spiritual life. Uh, many of these names you would know. Ignatius of Loyola, uh, Carmelites like John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila. Uh, there was a great missionary impulse that resulted um, in the mid-15th century to go out. For example, the evangelization of the Americas um, and the Pacific. And um, I might just finally mention, before going on to the next uh, question, St. Philip Neri. He came up with an idea that uh, will probably seem very familiar to those of you who are uh, Protestants, and that is the idea of the oratory. St. Philip was in Rome, um, in which there was widespread uh, decadence and immorality, people really not living the Christian life. And he said, let's, let's have this place where people can go off of the streets anytime and there'll just be constant uh, music and singing, praise to God, interspersed with preaching and prayer, and you can duck in and, and, uh, and hear beautiful music and hear good preaching and theology and a little bit of prayer, and then you can go back onto the street and back to whatever you're doing. And that was called the oratory, okay? Um, hugely successful. He is considered uh, to be one who almost single-handedly re-evangelized the city of Rome uh, itself. He was a man of great humor, um, very funny guy, very zealous, and he said, let's do this new thing, and it took off like wildfire. So, I would consider those to be good things. When you were mentioning their uh, <clears throat> theological impact of the Reformation uh, and what it was, some of the things that you mentioned, you said, you know, these, these could have been reformed, would have been good things to be reformed. I, I had never read all, through all 95 theses, and a few weeks ago I was doing that, and I was surprised to see something like 40 of them had to do with indulgences. Now, if you're a Protestant, and especially a young Protestant uh, who's kind of been raised in the church, in, the idea of an indulgence is uh, completely foreign to us. And so I wondered if you would just tell us what it is, uh, and um, in your opinion, do you think Luther had any legitimate reasons for calling <coughs> what Tetzel was doing into question? Sure, you bet. So um, forgive me for my ignorance, but have all of you studied the, um, the story of um, Johann Tetzel and, and all of that? Familiar with it? Seeing a few head nods. Okay, all right. All right, so, um, so yes, many of Luther's theses dealt with indulgences. So I'd like to begin by saying, first of all, that the issue of indulgences for a Catholic constitutes an extremely small area of faith um, about which the average Catholic, rightly or wrongly, is hardly concerned, okay? I would imagine that if you were to survey my folks and say, Do you, uh, are you concerned with indulgences? Most of them would say, what is an indulgence? So just to let you know that although this issue um, is at the core of the beginnings of the Protestant Reformation, from a Catholic point of view, this is not something that we are constantly talking about, preaching about, etc. Okay, it is an aspect of Catholic faith, and I will explain it here. Um, uh, so I'm going to quote to you from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which is the official summary uh, of all Catholic theology. It's a book about yay big. Okay, so bear with me and, and forgive me if, if you know, this, you're like, what in the world is this? So, all right, so the Catechism in paragraph 1471 uh, says, the doctrine and practice of indulgences in the church are closely linked to the effects of the sacrament of penance. That would be confession. What is an indulgence? An indulgence is a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven, which the faithful Christian, who is duly disposed, gains under certain prescribed conditions through the action of the church, which, as the minister of redemption, dispenses and applies with authority the treasury of the satisfactions of Christ and the saints. An indulgence is partial or plenary, that means full, according, according as it removes either part or all of the temporal punishment due to sins. Indulgences may be applied to the living or the dead. 
To understand this doctrine and practice of the church, it is necessary to understand that sin has a double consequence. Grave sin deprives us of communion with God and therefore makes us incapable of eternal life, the privation of which is called the eternal punishment of sin. On the other hand, every sin, even venial or small, uh, entails an unhealthy attachment to creatures which must be purified either here on earth or after death in the state called purgatory. This purification frees one from what is called the temporal punishment of sin. These two punishments must not be conceived of as a kind of vengeance inflicted by God from without, but as following from the very nature of sin. A conversion which proceeds from a fervent charity can attain the complete purification of the sinner in such a way that no punishment would remain. The forgiveness of sin and restoration of communion with God entail the remission of the eternal punishment of sin. So if you will, going to hell, you're not going to hell. But temporal punishment of sin remains. While patiently bearing sufferings and trials of all kinds, and when the day comes, serenely facing death, the Christian must strive to accept this temporal punishment of sin as a grace. He should strive by works of mercy and charity, as well as by prayer and the various practices of penance, to put off completely the old man and to put on the new man. All right, so I'll pause there. Everybody get that? Yeah, right. <laughs> the reason that I quoted that to you verbatim is because if, if I would have taken as much time to try to explain it in my own words and may have gotten off track. So at least you heard uh, the church's official summary. Allow me to give you an, an analogy, if you will, to, to explain this. Okay. Um, if I were to um, uh, willfully break my friend's window, not accidentally, but willfully break my friend's window, um, I have certainly violated my relationship with him, my friendship with him, my communion with him. Imagine, if you will, that the owner of the window is God, and he observes me just come and vandalize his window, smash his window, okay? And after having done it, I feel deep uh, contrition and remorse, and I go to him and say, I don't know what I was thinking. I am very, very sorry that I did this. Will you please, please forgive me, and can we still be friends? And uh, this person, being uh, an analogy for God, you know, would, would say, yes, I forgive you of this. And if I said, thanks so much, I'll see you later, there would be an obvious issue of, uh, well, aren't you going to repair my window? Now, um, if I was able to repair the window, I would be obliged to. However, when it comes to the realm of sin, we do not, by our nature as creatures, have the ability to undo perfectly that which we have done. Otherwise, we could save ourselves. It would be only right for me to say, I, I'm unable to repair your window. Let's say I don't have the money to, to repair your, your window. If, if the person said, how about this? I'll pay for the repair of the window. Would you at least be willing to help in its installation? If I were to say no, that would be kind of ridiculous. If I said, yes, wow, you're so gracious, thank you, then you might understand how, having sinned against God, he forgives us and restores relationship with us, but a disorder still remains, and also the issue of justice. In Christ's one sacrifice, offered once for all, the price has been paid, yet we see in the scriptures that, that Jesus expects us to participate in some way in suffering with him as he puts it, taking up your cross daily. The church, after many centuries of developing a theology, what does this mean that our suffering is redemptive and that Christ has asked us to participate in his redemptive act mean? In essence, the church says, we can be restored to friendship, reconciliation, and be assured of eternal salvation with God. So eternal punishment off the table there. However, we still must do our part in penance um, or other good works, acts of charity, etc., to, to participate in the redeeming act. Uh, what an indulgence is, 
is the church saying by her authority, which is, uh, which is full, a, uh, a person may be granted a special gift of grace, um, an, an indulgence of grace, so that rather, ha- rather than having to make up for all of my sins and whatever punishment might still be left over, I can, I can know in an authoritative way that has been dispensed. Kind of like a, a pardon by a governor, if you will. Okay. So, um, do we have time for me to continue just a little bit on this issue? Okay. So, to go back to the catechism, it says, The Christian who seeks to purify himself of his sin and to become holy with the help of God's grace is not alone. The life of each of God's children is joined in Christ and through Christ in a wonderful way to the life of all the other Christian brothers in the supernatural unity of the mystical body of Christ, as in a single mystical person. Okay, so I'd like to just point out here the emphasis on purity rather than on justice. As uh, as students of the scriptures, you have undoubtedly noticed the constant association that Christ made between being made pure and seeing God. For example, in the Beatitudes, when he says, blessed are the pure of heart, they will see God. Christians have always understood heaven as the beatific vision. Finally, the the unseen God will be made fully visible to me. And in many other scriptural passages, which I won't uh, mention at this time, you're probably familiar with them anyway. Okay, there's this constant emphasis. uh, Nothing impure will enter heaven. Um, Strive for that purity without which no one will see God. That, I believe, is the letter to the Hebrews and so on. Well, what does that mean? Uh, the church understands this as, as, uh, as revelation that we must take our time now to, uh, to work towards holiness, the purity of heart, mind, and will, so that uh, we will be received into heaven uh, and introduce nothing impure into heaven, if you will. Not that that would even be possible, okay? Hence the the uh, church's doctrine of a state of purification after death for those who need it called purgatory. Okay. Um, you wanted to ask, does the Catholic Church still practice the sale of indulgences today? Um, I would like to say that, uh, at least officially, the church has never sold indulgences. In practice, the argument could probably be made that in some of her ministers, she did, like Johann Tetzel because there was such a close association of giving donations of money and then the gift of indulgences. Well, in civil law, we're very careful about things like this, exchanges of money for benefits, because we call such things, for example, bribery, right? Well, Johann Tetzel was an arguably unscrupulous Dominican priest who was uh, sent into the region of what is now Germany, it was the German uh, principalities at the time, and uh, he was there to raise money for the construction of the new and current now St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And he was apparently, he would have made a good car salesman because he came up with methods that, that garnered a lot of money in exchange for the gift of indulgences um, including his famous jingle, um, which I've always wondered if this was in German, how does it translate so well into English? But <clears throat> supposedly it was, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Well, that's fairly disgusting from a theological point of view. And you can see how the average uneducated person would be led to believe that I am buying a spiritual benefit, namely an indulgence. Now, at least in theory, nobody was buying anything. You're making a donation. You're receiving this free gift. However, it's very clear that wasn't good. And in the reform of the Catholic Church from within that occurred during the uh, following the, the uh, Protestant Reformation, that practice was done away with, such that there is no exchange of uh, the gift of an indulgence correlated with money any longer. It's like we just got rid of that. Let's not risk that any longer. Okay. Um, that's all on that. Yeah, I, yeah. I want to sh- shift gears from indulgences. Uh, 
one thing that in my studies and, and reading through the, the um, Catholic Catechism, the Council of Trent, um, which was the official Catholic response to the Reformation, um, during that council, the Catholic Church took a very strong stance against the Reformers, uh, particularly some doctrines, anathematizing those who believed uh, in them. Let me just read a couple. If anyone says, this is Canon 9 from the Council of Trent, if anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, let him be anathema. If anyone says that the good works of the one justified are in such manner the gifts of God, that they are not also the good merits of him justified, or that the one justified by the good works that he performs by the grace of God and the merit of Jesus Christ does not truly merit an increase of grace and eternal life, let him be anathema. My question, uh, Father Gilbert, I know this is a difficult one, so thank you for letting me ask it. Those sentiments seem to have been reversed in the 1960s and 70s of Vatican II. Uh, CCC 818, paragraph 818 in the Catechism, basically calls Protestants brothers. So if me on my own studying this out, it looked like at one point the official stance was anathema, and then this, this changed in the 20th century, and now we are considered brothers, though to, to a, a lesser degree than other Catholic brothers. Could you just explain a little bit on how that change or how we should understand that change? Sure, okay, so a um, little background. So there was the, the Council of Trent in the mid-1500s that the next ecumenical council of the church would not take place until 1869-1870, the first Vatican Council, and then uh, the second Vatican Council, 1962 to 65. He's referencing that last council from the, the 1960s. And uh, how should we understand this change? I would, I would point out there has not been a change in the Catholic teaching in regards to the, to the issues. So at the Council of Trent, specific um, people like Martin Luther or, uh, or John Calvin or uh, Cranmer or others were not named as anathematized. It was the uh, positions that they had put forward that were contrary to Catholic uh, theology that were anathematized. Okay. Um, so we still believe, for example, that one is saved not only by faith alone. That theology has since uh, been uh, developed and sort of unpacked and explained even more. The difference is in context. So at that time, the church is being ruptured and, and fractured and there's a lot of trauma taking place. So she uh, needed to be very clear and firm there could be no doubt as to what the boundaries were in terms of where one could go. But 400 years later, in the mid-20th century, we're in a completely different situation. There's no longer an active breaking apart of a unified church. There's now 400 years of disunity. And um, people who are born, let's say, within Lutheranism, uh, are not responsible for the breaches of unity that Martin Luther or maybe his intimate followers began. Okay, so the, the Lutheran kid growing up in North Dakota in 1950 is not on the same level as Martin Luther, Catholic priest and rebel uh, in 1520. All right. So I thought again I might um, uh, flesh this out with uh, the paragraphs that you probably have seen in the Catechism. Okay. In fact, so again, this is official Catholic teaching. In fact, in this one and only Church of God, from its very beginnings there arose certain rifts, which the apostle, that is Paul, strongly censures as damnable. I mean, you read the New Testament, you can see already in the first generation there's divisions within the church. But in subsequent centuries, much more serious dissensions appeared, and large communities became separated from full communion with the Catholic Church, for which, often enough, men of both sides were to blame. Okay, humble admission that uh, just because people were Catholic doesn't mean that they were acting in the best way. Okay. The ruptures that wound the unity of Christ's body, here we must distinguish heresy, apostasy, and schism, do not occur without human sin. Um, as Origen said uh, centuries and centuries ago, 
Where there are sins, there are also divisions, schisms, heresies, and disputes. Where there is virtue, however, there are also harmony and unity, from which arise the one heart and one soul of all believers. However, uh, one cannot charge with the sin of the separation those who at present are born into these communities that resulted from such separation, and in them are brought up in the faith of Christ, and the Catholic Church accepts them with respect and affection as brothers. All who have been justified by faith in baptism are incorporated into Christ. They therefore have a right to be called Christians, and with good reason are accepted as brothers in the Lord by the children of the Catholic Church. So to make an example of you, for example, if you were raised um, within one of these communities, in a, in a Protestant community, you are on a different level than I am, say, having been raised in the Catholic faith and now also being a Catholic priest. If I were to go my own way tomorrow and pronounce and promote uh, a heresy and say, um, we're going to be the Church of Gilbaugh now, and follow me, that is, that is a, a grave sin on a level much different than a person who is just born within a community already separated from the Catholic Church and continuing that which, which they have been taught. I hope that makes sense. Okay. Furthermore, uh, many elements of sanctification and of truth are found outside the visible confines of the Catholic Church. For example, the written word of God, the life of grace, faith, hope, and charity, with the other interior gifts of the Holy Spirit, as well as visible elements. Christ's Spirit uses these churches and ecclesial communities as means of salvation, whose power derives from the fullness of grace and truth that Christ has entrusted to the Catholic Church. All these blessings come from Christ and lead to Him and are in themselves calls to Christian unity. So the Catholic position is not that if you are not Catholic, you're going to hell de facto, or that everything um, within your community must de facto be wrong or bad or anything like that. Not at all. Um, she, she emphasizes now in the 20 and 21st century the via positiva whereas in the midst of the crisis of the 1500s, she emphasized the via negativa, okay? And desires very much for us to be engaged in things such as we are doing right now, um, so that we may understand each other respectfully and where appropriate, join together in those things that we hold in common. This semester in our chapels, <clears throat> we have kind of a Reformation theme and this semester we're doing the five solas, the five uh, solas, faith alone, scripture alone, etc. Um, I was wondering, what are the other three? Grace alone, God's glory alone, and uh, Christ alone. <clears throat> so my question regarding sola fide, uh, Father Gilba, that's where I wanted to go. Mm -hmm. We believe uh, that a person is saved by grace alone, uh, through faith alone, and that salvation is not and cannot be a result of works at all, but it is a free gift simply to be received through faith. What is your take on the doctrine of sola fide? Okay. <clears throat> I should have asked this before we um, were talking, but when you say we believe, what, what do you mean by the we? Are you saying like... I guess to keep things simple, that's what we teach here at the okay. school. Okay. All right. Um, okay, so now this is a little bit, uh, little bit personal, um, Father Eric Gilbaugh's presentation of theology, but I believe in harmony and based upon Catholic teaching. Because I believe, um, as the Catholic Church teaches, that a person is saved through faith and good works, properly understood, I would have to say that I believe uh, sola fide to be inconsistent with Christian scripture and tradition. As uh, as we have talked about privately, the issue of salvation is a fairly large and complicated issue. Um, it involves many facets and many terms. Merit, faith, justification, love, mercy, works, opportunity, will, and so forth. Um, how do you take all of those concepts 
and especially terms when they are inspired within the scriptures and make sense of them all. Um, Catholics do not view salvation in a merely past tense way, which um, I have experienced uh, in some branches, though not all, of Protestantism. Usually summarized by the phrase, I was saved, or um, in a very American way, I got saved, okay? <laughs> so uh, that would not be a Catholic understanding of salvation. We understand salvation, um, big picture, as a process that has past, yes, but also present and future aspects. So a Catholic might say, uh, you know, an answer, have you been saved? Yes, I was saved when I first received and accepted the graces of, of the Christian faith, and most especially when I was baptized. I am being saved, present tense. I'm doing what Christ commanded in obedience to his commands. I'm trying to love as he loves me. I am continuing to receive grace to help me. I'm repenting when I do sin, etc. And I hope that I will be saved, future. That means that when I am judged by him, that he will uh, say, well done, good and faithful servant, and not depart from me, you evildoer. Okay. Um, you asked me also uh, in the email, if works play a role in salvation, to what extent? Um, and how do you know when you have done enough? Um, I would ask, how could there ever be enough good works? Um, I, I don't know that that would uh, or should even be a, a question for the Christian. Um, it's at least not a concern for me. Okay. Um, when I've talked with Danny before and the, the term works came up, I, I said to him, I feel like that term is, is tinged in the sense that just work, you know, labor, there is, an, there is an implication of, uh, of doing, doing something oneself such that a person might be led to conclude, I have saved myself. I want you to know that any such thought is anathema to Catholic theology, and we do not believe that we save ourselves. We believe that we must cooperate with God's grace um, and do what he commands, and those are what we would term good works. But for example, if you, if you didn't like the word works, uh, and you removed that, and you substituted this term, acts of love, and you were to ask the average Christian, Catholic or Protestant or Orthodox, do you believe that you can be saved without performing acts of love? I would hope that the answer would be no, since that we are commanded to love, and love requires acts both interior and exterior. So how am I saved? By God's grace, grace, but also by acts of love. Um, why must, why must we, we do acts of love or good works? Um, from a Catholic point of view, it would be out of obedience at the very least um, and um, love in return to God at, at the most. What role do they play, uh, you asked? Uh, well, Jesus commanded us to do good works. He commanded us to acts of love. I would ask, how could we be saved if we do not do what he commands? And a, a very Catholic understanding of, of salvation um, is based upon the concept of friendship with God. Communion with God understood as friendship with God. I no longer call you slaves, I call you friends, okay? Um, he teaches, uh, you are my friends if you do what I command you, right? St. John in his uh, epistles is constantly emphasizing and driving home this point, okay? Um, therefore, in order to maintain friendship with Christ, I must do what he commands. Um, the, uh, the parable of the uh, separation of the sheep and the goats, one of our extremely rare 
privileged insights into the final judgment. Um, okay, you've got sheep, and they're you know the saved, if you will, received into heaven, and the goats are the damned. What I would point out is that none of them are unbelievers in that all of them profess Jesus as Lord as they come before him. Lord, when did we see you naked and not clothe you? Um, when did we see you hungry and not feed you? They don't say, who are you? Never seen you before. They say, Lord. They, they obviously know him. And he says, depart from me, you evildoers, into the eternal fire prepared for you and the fallen angels. For I was hungry and you did not feed me. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink, etc. Naked and you did not clothe me. Now, that should send chills down the spine of any Christian who is not doing those things. I, I would propose that that is um, an outstanding parable from the lips of Christ himself, not even an apostle, or certainly not any Catholic bishop, that good works, acts of love, have a very big role to play in one's ultimate salvation. So that would be the future tense from a Catholic point of view. Um, all right, uh, for the sake of time, I want to try to get through your other questions. Um, uh, can a person, you asked me, can a person ever know with certainty his or her eternal destiny? My answer to that, which by the way, um, is not a question that would occur to a Catholic, your average Catholic, I don't think. I, I have received in, in conversation, interaction with, with Protestants, um, a concern and emphasis upon knowledge of salvation, uh, which is foreign to me, I would say probably foreign to most Catholics, concern with a knowledge. I would answer that um, unless one is one's own judge, or unless one can know the mind of God perfectly, um, I would say no, a person could not know with certainty his or her eternal destiny. It does seem that the goats are caught off guard, doesn't it, in the parable. Um, I would propose, and I mean no disrespect here, that th that emphasis upon knowledge strikes me as foreign to the Christian ethos, knowledge as opposed to the virtue of hope, the theological virtue of hope. Placing one's faith in what could come to be understood by the person as an almost legal contractual agreement that God must fulfill, as opposed to um, hope and confidence in Jesus' mercy. Um, I think, for example, of cases in which Jesus challenged, to say the least, those who were overly confident of a status before God. Um, do not presume to say we have, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, God can raise up children to Abraham from these stones. So don't think that just because you're Semitic, you've, you've got an in. Uh, Lord, I thank you that I am not like the rest of humanity. That man did not go home justified. The man who beat his breast and said, have mercy on me, a sinner, did. Whoa, okay. Um, do I personally believe, you asked, to know my own eternal destiny? Uh, my answer would be no. I believe that until I die, I have the frightening ability to freely reject God so as to merit eternal damnation, as well as the opportunity to always return to Jesus' merciful love and be restored to his grace when I fall. I do not presume to know or to be able to judge my eternal destiny but leave it entirely up to my Lord and hope in his divine mercy alone, not my own merits. And when I say that, I am being completely sincere with you. Uh, daily, regularly, I am calling on the Lord's mercy because I know what a sinner I am and I know what a hypocrite I am. And that's my hope, is his mercy and nothing less than that. So. We give a... Uh Round of applause to Father Gilbach. I know that uh, class, uh, some of you have a class here shortly, but he, Father Gilbach has brought some uh, materials that he asked permission to share 
which, um, which I said that he'd be more than free to do. If anybody wants to uh, come up and, and ask questions and things like that, uh, please, we, we do have time, and, and we gotta be careful with his time, but I think he does have a little no, bit. No, I, I do have time, um, and I've got a bunch of indulgences here. <laughs> Just kidding. No, what I have here is, um, a few years ago, I got on a big evangelization kick, and uh, my parishioners and I, we did door-to-door -door evangelization um, in Belgrade, and uh, what we did was we had CDs produced uh, that we gave to people as gifts, and they are probably about an hour-long talk. There are two talks, so I grabbed a bunch of them. I hoped that I would have enough. We talked about some very particular issues here, and I'm so feel so very privileged to have been able to present to you from the Catholic perspective. However, the Catholic perspective is so much bigger and broader that um, I thought maybe these would, would uh, give some greater context. Um, so I'd like to give them to you as, as gifts, and um, I would be happy to stay and, and do Q&A with anybody who's able to, to remain. And I just want to say again, I believe in this sort of thing very, very strongly. I would not uh, be able to be here, meet you, and interact with you uh, without uh, Danny's gracious invitation. And so I want to say thank you very much. Very, I feel just very honored and privileged to, uh, to be here. Thanks. Let's pray, and then you'll be dismissed. All right. Father God, thank you so much for our lives. Thank you, Lord, for our breath. Thank you for our heartbeats. We know that you are in control and sovereign over all of those things. Lord, uh, today we talked about and we heard some things that uh, uh, Father Gilbaugh is right about. We, we, we do not have uh, unity over these things. These doctrinal truths are precious, so precious. We want, if anything, to get the gospel right. If anything, we want to know, what must I do to be saved? So I, pre I, I ask, Lord, that today... Uh, for anybody who's here, that we would not be able to leave here today without checking your word, going to it, and, and, and uh, mining the beautiful truths, the wonderful truths that are there to try to know what it really says. Thank you so much for the opportunity uh, to do this. I pray that uh, Father Gilba's example uh, would, uh, would come home to us and we would use it in our discussions with other people so that we would be respectful even though we have strong convictions. Thank you, Lord, for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.